A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Ida Vok in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 20th of November. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. All right, Ido, how is Berlin? Yeah, like I said last week, you know, it's pretty quiet. There's not a lot going on. You know, whenever you talk to your friends, they're like, you know, what's new? It's sort of an instinct. How are you doing? The answer is always the same because nothing really happens. And how is Washington, D.C.? You know, Washington, D.C. has been better. Cases continue to climb. We continue to have indoor dining, which seems like a mistake. And also for D.C. and the country more broadly, Congress left for Thanksgiving and didn't pass more coronavirus relief. And so people are kind of left to fend for themselves, both in terms of the choices they make, right? Although people are saying, don't see your family for Thanksgiving, it's still left down to individual choice. And likewise, people are left to fend for themselves financially because there's very little support from our government. So on that grim note, and before we get to our guest, what is the moment of the past week that you think will go down in history? I think what will go down in history is the vetoing by Poland and Hungary, or the governments of Poland and Hungary, of the EU budget, which was vetoed on Monday. This was done because there was a clause inserted in the draft budget, which would have linked the disimbursement of EU funds to respect for the rule of law, which was a coded attempt to rein in the instincts of governments, particularly in Poland and Hungary, which have been very lax on the rule of law, which have seen what is viewed in Brussels as democratic backsliding in recent years. So this was unacceptable to Hungary and to Poland, and so they vetoed it, and negotiations are ongoing. This is significant because Poland and Hungary really need this money, but they are willing to place their own domestic political considerations over the budget and and this money that they badly need. And so this is some significant leverage that the EU has over those countries and to sort of incite them to perhaps deal with the rule of law better. But whether that is actually used remains to be seen. Yeah, the saga of the Visegrad 4, or I guess we could say Visegrad 2 in this case, continues. My moment at the risk of continuing to be too US-centric is that President Trump, in addition to bringing forth these legal challenges, this week took to personally calling local and state election officials and lawmakers to try to reverse the results of the presidential election, which is both not surprising because he said he was going to try to do this and is still shocking. And I think whether or not it quote unquote works, it will have worked in, I mean, not to be dramatic, but it will have worked in undermining our democracy and setting a precedent for politicians for generations to come, provided we live long enough to have (laughs) generations of politicians. Okay. On that, let's bring in our guest. I am delighted because we are joined today by Milan Vishnev. Milan is the director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment, where he's also a senior fellow. And he's also the author of When Crime Pays, Money and Muscle in Indian Politics, which 
Unlike some of the books of some of the people that we have on this podcast, not to give the game away, I have actually read this one, so I can tell you it is excellent and mean it. Millen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start out a thousand years ago in the winter of 2020, I was in Delhi and got into not arguments, but but disagreements with people there because there was this assumption that because Trump and Modi sort of touted their relationship, because Trump came to India and you know had the, the big rally in, in Gujarat with Prime Minister Modi, that because of that, Indian Americans would vote for Trump this November. And then lo and behold, Shortly before the election, you and two co-authors came out with with a paper on how how Indian Americans would vote. And what you found has been borne out by the exit polls that we have so far, which is that indeed Indian Americans continue to vote for Democrats. And so my my question to start out, if you could just talk about some of the assumptions that you think people in India and also here in the US had about Indian American voters and, and why those assumptions were wrong. Sure. So as you said, my organization, the Carnegie Endowment, in conjunction with Johns Hopkins Sice and the University of Pennsylvania, carried out a survey about a thousand Indian American U.S. citizens who could vote in this election. This was in September of 2020. And what we found is that nearly three in four Indian Americans plan to vote for Joe Biden, the Democratic challenger of this election. Just 22% plan to vote for the incumbent Donald Trump. And in fact, this is in keeping with what is a pretty strong pro-democratic party orientation of the Indian American community. I think going back to your experiences in Delhi, Emily, there was a belief that this time would be different for a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, you know, Trump and Modi have had this personal courtship, this bromance, if you will, that Trump really tried to take to the bank. You know, he he cut specific campaign ads kind of showing the two men holding hands, parading around the stage in Houston, Texas, when they did this joint rally in front of 55,000 cheering members of the diaspora. And so I think many people thought, look, because of this bonhomie and the fact that a Biden-Harris administration might apply more scrutiny to some of the democratic backsliding we've seen in India, this is going to lead to the large-scale defection of Indian Americans away from the Democratic Party and into the hands of the GOP. And we didn't see that. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think, number one, you know, we way overestimate the extent to which people vote on the basis of foreign policy. You know, we asked these Indian Americans, you know, what is the most important issue to you as you think about how you're going to cast your vote? U.S.-India relations, just 3% of respondents said that was their number one issue. What did people care about? They cared about the economy. They cared about healthcare. They cared about, you know, social justice and racial discrimination, the same things that most Americans care about. So that's the kind of, I think, you know, the kind of proximate factor. I think the deeper factor is that for many years now, the Indian Americans view the Republican Party as fundamentally unwelcoming because their policies are seen as xenophobic, as anti-immigration, as racist. And, you know, Indian Americans in many respects are the poster children for America's broadly welcoming liberal immigration regime. So I think, you know, this is not a new finding, but I do think it certainly cuts against the conventional wisdom that you heard that, you know, this time was going to be very different and we'd see a big switch. It reminds me a lot. Obviously, there are differences, but it reminds me a lot of the conversation about and around Jewish American voters and this assumption that because Trump took the position he did toward Israel, that therefore American Jews who live here, not in Israel, would would vote for Trump, which, again, we 
which didn't happen because Jewish American voters tend to vote Democratic and indeed did for the most part this time as well. But I wanted to ask you if in your experience, there is a sense in Indian policymaking circles that the Republicans in, in elected office, Republican policymakers, are friendlier toward India than our Democrats? And, and if so, how that view came to be? You know, I think there is a baseline understanding that, frankly, U.S.-India relations have prospered under both Democratic and Republican administrations. I think more recently, there has become a slice of the Indian policymaking elite that seems to prefer Republicans. And I think this is based on kind of two premises. The first, again, is that issues of democracy, individual freedoms, human rights tend to take a more front and center role in democratic administrations. And so from India's perspective, changes to the status of Jammu and Kashmir, alterations to India's citizenship regime, the movement of kind of domestic policy in a more pro-Hindu direction are things that may not sit well with Democrats. And I think they're they're worried about the backlash. I think that's number one. And I think number two is that the hawkish rhetoric that many Republicans have employed vis-a-vis China has given India a big boost, right? And I think that there is some concern that even in the Biden administration, that there is a tendency for a new president to come in and say, you know, I'm going to kind of work my diplomatic routine and I'm going to talk to Xi Jinping and, and be able to kind of, you know, strike this kind of rapprochement. And so I do think there is some hesitancy precisely because of these two factors right now. In terms of the U.S. relationship with India with regards to China, India is often seen as a kind of essential counterweight to to China in the Indo-Pacific. And there's a lot of talk of the U.S. working more closely with India to counterbalance China in the region, in part because of shared values and in part just because it's obviously the only country comparable in, in size and population to China. How do you see that relationship evolving in the context of a more competitive relationship between the US and China, which everyone agrees is the way that the next decade or so is going to go? I mean, in some ways, the recent conflict between China and India along the what they call the line of actual control, this disputed territory between the two countries that runs over an extended you know, boundary, has given a real fillip, I think, to US-India relations because public opinion in India has really swung against the Chinese in ways that I certainly have not seen before. And of course, public opinion of China in the United States, I don't need to, to remind your listeners, is, is quite low at the moment. And so it was telling to me that the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State traveled to New Delhi just days before the election for what they call the two plus two dialogue. This is the meeting of the Indian and U.S. security, defense and, and foreign policy ministers to try to push forward on things like military to military cooperation, new mechanisms for intelligence sharing and so on. So, you know, I think going forward, that that is only going to deepen. I think the concern comes is that we are seeing a over-securitization of the relationship. There have always been two streams, a kind of military diplomatic security arm and an economic arm. And the economic pillar of the U.S.-India relationship has really weakened when it comes to kind of government-to-government agreements. Obviously, you know, the private sector continues to trade and invest and so on. And here's, I think, where we're in a bit of a dilemma because we have seen 
a doubling down on protectionism in India, you know, new tariff barriers, a new push to kind of, you know, localize production. You know, India does not figure into either RCEP or TPP, these two mega kind of trade agreements. Of course, neither does the United States for that matter. And, and here in Washington, you know, there just doesn't really seem to be any appetite on Capitol Hill or in the corridors of power in the executive branch to kind of push for these big trade agreements. So I do think that there is probably continued trouble on the economic side. I think the silver lining in a Biden administration is that there are two irritants that they could probably deal with pretty easily. I think one is immigration. You know, we have seen the Trump administration slap not just new curbs on low-skilled migration or undocumented migration, but also high-skilled worker visas, things like H-1Bs, which, you know, which, which has been a big issue with India, of course. So I think the Biden administration would take a more favorable view on that. And I think secondly, there is some this kind of low hanging fruit, I think, there to be had where short of a trade deal, you know, India has traditionally enjoyed kind of these one way unilateral trade preferences that the U.S. has given. The Trump administration revoked those. You know, I think there is a trade deal to be had, which would be pretty low hanging fruit in exchanging that for some enhanced, you know, energy purchases from the United States or, you know, incremental market access. So I don't want to overplay the scale of that kind of deal, but I do think it's something to at least get some of the immediate irritants kind of cleared off the table. I want to take you from US, India, China to US, India, Russia. I don't need to tell you, but I will tell our, our listeners that India and Russia have this, this historic relationship dating back to the Soviet Union. It's particularly important in the defense realm. I think that we can safely say that a Joe Biden administration will take a hawkish stance on Russia and that unlike in the Trump administration, there will be consistency between the White House and the rest of the executive on that stance. Do you think that that will, A, hasten India's drift from Russia to the United States, B, push India more closely to Russia because it doesn't want to be the junior partner at anyone's anyone's table, or C, neither of the above? I would go with A, Emily. I think that we are going to see the US and India continue to grow closer, partially at the expense of India-Russia relations. And I think the thing that US policymakers are really focused on is the trend. You know, as you said, mm. India has traditionally gotten the lion's share of its arms imports from Russia. And so there are a number of legacy systems which are going to require you know, Russian assistance, Russian spare parts, Russian kind of care and feeding. But India has slowly started to diversify. It is purchasing more arms from, from Europe, from the Israelis, from the Americans. And I think what U.S. policymakers can be focused on is the trend, you know, as long as it's kind of headed in the right direction. I think everyone is quite clear-eyed about the fact that, you know, you, you can't just flip a switch and kind of end all defense deals with Russia, you know, overnight. I think that when you think about India as it looks out to the future, I, I think there is a recognition in Delhi that in terms of the things that India really requires, which is, you know, big pools, foreign direct investment, human capital, high technology, those are things that are going to come from the United States, by and large, and not from Russia. So I think it's pretty clear where the emphasis in Indian foreign policy lies these days. It seems that the incoming Biden administration, based on the language that we've seen from them so far, that they are going to continue to use the framework of the, the Indo-Pacific, right? The free and open Indo-Pacific. 
even though that was also a framework used by the Trump administration. Do you think that there is a clear understanding between both the United States and India what that framework means, like what what it is? And do you think it's a a workable framework? Well, I think, Emily, the, the, the trouble is, you know, right now the Indo-Pacific is more a geographic construct mm-hmm. than the policy construct. Yep. You know, this is a point made by my Carnegie colleague, Evan Feigenbaum, who has kind of harped on this point for some time, that I think there is greater convergence in kind of conceptualizing there is this region known as the Indo-Pacific where the U.S. and India can continue to work together to establish a kind of new power equation. And so you see things like the Quad, right? The U.S., India, Japan, Australia working together in in new ways. In fact, as we speak today, military exercises are underway with the four armed services. Now, what's really missing, though, from this, and this is why I think it's not a full-fledged policy construct, is there's no economic content there, right? I mean, there is just simply not an economic strategy at all. And I think this was really brought into stark relief, you know, this week, right? 15 nations came together to sign the RCEP agreement, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. You know, this is like 2 billion people, right, come under this arrangement. And and neither the India nor the United States figure into this. And so I do think that there is a clear aspect of this relationship that is not firing on all four cylinders. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest challenges a Biden administration faces is, you know, how do they bring the U.S. Congress along to kind of have a more enlightened view on this or risk getting left behind, not just by China, but by the rest of Asia, right? Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Another challenge that the Biden administration might face with regards to India is standing up to what are widely viewed in the West, and certainly I'd imagine among the Democratic Party, as human rights abuses by the Modi government, in particular acts such as the Citizenship Amendment Act, which was widely viewed as discriminating against Muslims. How could the Biden administration realistically pressure India, and I suppose in in the short term or the medium term, the Modi government, to pursue policies which are less antagonistic to human rights? You know, this is a really tricky question. And my own sense of where things are headed is as follows. There has been some concern, as I mentioned before, in the corridors of power in Delhi that a Biden-Harris administration might create troubles for India on these questions of human rights and civil liberties. I don't actually think that's borne out by (laughs) what you're hearing from people who are involved in the campaign or in a future Biden administration. They have no appetite that I can determine to pick a fight with India right now. You know, there are bigger fish to fry. And I think China's behavior in the wake of the COVID pandemic, China's behavior right now in the Himalayas has sharpened that resolve here in Washington. Now, that's not to say that these issues aren't important. I certainly believe they are, and I'd like to see them get greater emphasis, but I don't sense the appetite. How could they do it? I, I suspect how they're going to do it is, is frankly, in the realm of rhetoric, not really policy change. You know, I mean, we saw this a lot in the Obama administration where the president was and his colleagues pretty reluctant to raise some of these issues 
kind of frontally in public speeches and discourse, but deliver these messages privately. And I suspect that's what the Biden administration is going to do. So on an issue like Kashmir, you know, there are still people who are under detention. There are still members of the opposition who are not able to exercise freedom of movement, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. And I expect that, you know, there will be some pressure applied on those things. But I do think we have to be realistic that in a country as big as India, and given their traditional adherence to, you know, what they call strategic autonomy and non-alignment, you know, there, there are not a lot of takers for electors in the United States. And I think, unfortunately, you know, one thing that our current democratic malaise in our own country is showing is that we frankly don't have much standing on these issues anymore, right? I mean, if you look at the absurdity of what's happening in Washington right now, what Emily alluded to in her introduction, there's just no appetite for hearing lectures from the United States on on issues of democracy. So I don't think there's much we can do. I think to the extent we're going to push on these issues, it's going to be through private diplomatic channels. And I suspect with with modest effects. I have one last question following up on that, which is you heard a lot in India in recent months and years that kind of sounded, and not to say that it wasn't, that that it was like copycatted from the Trump administration, but that worked well with the kind of Trump framework, right? A real focus on strategic autonomy and sovereignty. Do you think that we'll see a shift from the language of sovereignty toward the language of, of multilateralism? I think it will be very ad hoc, Emily. I think we'll see it on certain issues. I think there's certain issues where India sees it's in its advantage to do that. So take climate change, for instance, right? I mean, you know, Delhi was quite happy with the way in which it acquitted itself in the Paris Climate Accord negotiations, only to be then thrown under the bus by the Trump administration and, and Washington, right? And so I think there are areas where they have tried to take a responsible role as a kind of global stakeholder where they believe, whether it's the nonproliferation regime, whether it's climate change, whether it's combating terrorism, where I think they'll be very keen to work with the United States. But, you know, I just refer you to a speech that the External Affairs Minister of India, S.J. Shankar, gave this week without talking about RCEP specifically, but talking about kind of how India sees itself. Very, very critical of globalization, basically saying that, you know, we drank the Kool-Aid on this trade and integration. And where has it gotten us? It's gotten us deindustrialization. So don't expect us to make those same mistakes again. You know, first and foremost, we want to be a self-reliant India. And people are going to have to do business here on our terms, right? That doesn't strike me as moving away across the board towards kind of globalization and away from sovereignty and, and autonomy. And on that note, it's now time for a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call. You ask us. All right. So as much as we've talked about the American elections on this podcast, they are not the only ones. And people wanted to know, why were the Bihar elections important? Yeah, great question. So last week, there was another big election with about 110 million people, the state of Bihar, North Indian state, which went to the polls. We saw a a pretty impressive, in some ways, victory by the BJP-led alliance. So this is the ruling party of Narendra Modi and a regional party known as the JDU. They had been the incumbents. There was a sense, I think, in the opposition that this was their year because India is dealing with multiple crises and economic crises. Obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic is still raging. China has just occupied a chunk of of Indian territory that there are many fronts on which the the incumbents are quite weak, but they managed to stave off anti-incumbency. And I think this is important 
because this was really the first electoral test that Modi has had to face since the onset of the pandemic. And Bihar is a really interesting case because Bihar is a state where there is net out migration. It is a relatively poor rural state. A lot of people leave the state to go take up productive employment in big cities like Mumbai and Delhi and so on. And when the COVID lockdown was announced in March, a lot of these migrants were trapped. And it it spawned a pretty massive humanitarian crisis in which tens of millions of Indians were stuck with nowhere to go. You know, you saw these tragic scenes of people walking hundreds of kilometers to get back home, sometimes dying on the side of the road. And, and so Bihar was heavily hit. And yet Modi remains as popular as ever. There are no signs whatsoever that his favorability has dimmed. And so I think if you're the Indian opposition looking ahead, this has got to be incredibly dispiriting because the politics of accountability as you would expect them to play out where, you know, voters kind of assess their situation. Are we better off or worse off? And if we're worse off, let's take it out of the incumbent. That just simply doesn't seem to be the way Indians are voting right now. One reads articles about the opposition Congress party being in, in disarray and being disappointed yet again by how it performed in an election. Is there anything that you think that they could be doing that they're currently not doing that would change fortunes for them? So, Emily, you know, if you go back to the Congress's historical national election debacle in 2014, where it won just 44 seats in a parliament of 543 members, Mm -hmm. the worst performance ever by the party, there were really three big weaknesses that people identified, right? So one is absence of leadership. The second is a kind of missing ideology. You know, what did the Congress stand for? And three was a real hollowing out of the Congress's kind of ground game, its organizational core. Six years later, we are still basically pointing to the same three things. And there has been no progress. Rahul Gandhi, who is the heir apparent to the Nehru Gandhi dynasty, which has run the Congress for you know basically a century, it doesn't appear to be any more effective as a leader or politician than he was six years ago. The Congress organization is still anemic. They lack money. They lack resources. They lack talent. And ideologically, they have not been able to come up with an alternative platform that is frankly attractive to Indian voters. So they have campaigned as the anti-Modi party, and that's gotten them some limited success, but it hasn't been able to really counter, you know, Modi's real strengths. You know, I mean, here is a once in a generation politician, and there is no opposition leader in the country who seems to be able to go head to head, toe to toe with him. So I I fear that we are seeing the continued decline and, and probable, I would say at this point, fragmentation of the Congress into kind of, you know, splinters and local franchises that may have the Congress name, but there's going to be very little holding them together. My only other follow up is, do you think that this will convince Rahul Gandhi that he should not be leading the party and actually stay away from the head of the party this time? I see no signs of that. I I honestly don't. I mean, I I really feel as if very little has been learned. I mean, we keep hearing rumors from Delhi that he's planning on coming back and taking over. I should just mention for your listeners, he was the president of the Congress party, took over from his mother after the 2019 electoral drubbing. He resigned. Now there's a lot of talk about how he might come back. And dynastic succession in political parties does have a virtue which is it it makes these transitions of power very clear. There is no dispute about who is going to get the top job, right? But there is a very real downside to that, which is what if you come to a dud, 
in the dynastic succession, then that person serves as a blockage on any other talent coming forward. And I think that's just where we are. And there again, there's no sign that the Congress is going to be, you know, kind of wavering, you know, off of its line. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Keep them coming at uaskus.co.uk and look out for our announcement of our guest next week on our international Twitter account at Statesman World. As ever, for our final segment, we're going to take a look ahead. Millen, what in global affairs will you be watching closely next week? Well, I think there's sort of two things, you know, one India specific, one general, I suppose, although with implications for India, the general one is, you know, I think we're going to start seeing some cabinet announcements here from the Biden administration. And I think all eyes are on, you know, who he plans to give the kind of power, so-called power ministries, right? The Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury. And I think, you know, that those are going to be really crucial, I think, in both signaling to American audience, of course, but also internationally, you know, how this president plans to staff his administration. So, I would say there's quite a lot of anticipation, at least in, in India, over the Secretary of State position, National Security Advisor. These are the ones that that are obviously can be critical in terms of setting a tone with New Delhi. The India-specific one is dipping back into the Congress Party conversation. There was a group of 23 leading Congress officials who sent a kind of SOS to the party leadership a couple of months ago saying, if we continue down our current path, we are writing ourselves into irrelevance. We have seen some of those voices creep back up. They were slammed and really almost banished by the Congress party leadership when they when they spoke out. We're seeing some of them come back. And it's going to be interesting to see whether or not this is going to build into a crescendo, whether some of the young and up and coming members of the Congress who have been very silent, if they're going to speak up and launch some kind of you know, mutiny, or at least apply the kinds of pressure I think we need to see in order to get the opposition party to kind of change tack. Mm. One to watch. And Ido, what will you be keeping an eye on? I'll be keeping an eye on the budget negotiations in Brussels. The negotiations to overturn the Polish and Hungarian veto could go basically one of three ways. The first is that the EU gives in and it removes this rule of law mechanism from the budget. The second is Hungary and Poland give in and they accept the conditions on the rule of law. And the third is the kind of nuclear option that has been floated by countries like France in recent days, which is removing Hungary and Poland and recalcitrant members entirely from funds and sort of withholding funds from them entirely. This is important because because of the way EU structures work and also some political considerations, the EU generally speaking, is not particularly forceful in the way it stands up to what it perceives as Hungary's, in particular, erosion of democratic norms and liberal politics that they champion and that the European project is supposed to be built on. Whether the EU can find a way to force Hungary in particular and also Poland to back down and to accept some version of the rule of law mechanism will be quite important for the way Hungary and Poland and potentially other countries that are tempted perhaps by the strain of politics that has been championed by Hungary and Poland in recent years, how politics in those countries develops in the years to come. If the EU gives in, then it's very, very likely that there will be no change of course. And if the EU finds some way to, on the contrary, force Hungary and Poland to give in, then things could be very different in future. 
And what will you be looking at for, Emily? Well, we're going to uh, start and end this podcast with gloom from Central Europe and also the United States. Mine is not, strictly speaking, an event in global affairs. I'm cheating a little bit. But next week is Thanksgiving, which is the huge harvest feast for those of us in the United States. And I will be watching with a lot of trepidation to see how many people choose to travel outside of their bubbles to be with family members and what happens to the spread of this virus after the holiday. If you are an American listening to this podcast, I just want to urge you. I like I know it's I know it's unfair and I know that we're in this situation because of the mishandling of the pandemic and I know that it wasn't your fault and I get it. I teared up canceling my hotel reservation to be with my parents in New York. I would just urge you to be safe and to think of this as as a sacrifice you're making to be able to enjoy many more Thanksgiving dinners. With that, all that remains is to thank Milan Vaishnav for joining us. Milan, thank you so much for being with us today. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Millen, once again, is the senior director of the South Asia program at Carnegie, where he is also a senior fellow and the author of When Crime Pays. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. You can also tell your haters. And you can also subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review and follow all of our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.